My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Well, I love being a pastor. Uh, Usually, you know, I just work on Sundays, so that's easy. No, <laughs> um, I, love, I love meeting with folks. I love coaching, counseling, encouraging, challenging. Uh, you know, it, one of my just greatest desires is to sit one-on-one with someone and just hear their story, whether it's over coffee or lunch or something in my office, and just being able to hear what God's doing. Uh, sometimes that's difficult because usually people only want to meet with me when things are going wrong. I mean, you never go to your mechanic and go, hey, just want you to know the car's doing fine. You know, you never stop at the police station. Hey, just want you to know everything's good. You know, you just don't go to the ER and go, it's all working. You know, uh, usually you go to those places when something's broken, right? And so that is kind of the course of being a pastor, a counselor, is that when things are broken, you know, I get the privilege of meeting with folks and talking with people. And, and for the most part, that's really exciting. Sometimes it's not. And those times are difficult because when I will listen and, and, and try to understand where a person's at, you know, my true north is I will say, well, what does the Bible say about that? And we'll go to the scripture and say, this is what the Bible would say. It's an it's a instruction for you, an encouragement for you, a challenge for you. And, and this is what God would do in your life if you follow through with this. The reason that's discouraging sometimes is that sometimes, and maybe even, you know, many times, people will go, yeah, nod their head and go, but I want to do this. It's like, okay, but this is what God said will bless your life. Yeah, but I want to do this. And one of the more challenging passages of scriptures is one that I think about often when I meet in those situations. It's from the words of the Apostle Paul to his young disciple Timothy. And it's in 1 Timothy 1.9. Paul says to Timothy, cling to your faith in Christ. Hold on to Jesus, in other words. Hold on to Jesus. And uh, keep your conscience clear. In other words, um, that little, you know, compass inside of you that God has put inside of everyone, but especially as a follower of Jesus Christ, God's Spirit has put inside of you. Uh, Make sure that you're listening to the voice of the Spirit of God in your heart and your life. Make sure you're doing whatever the Spirit says to do. So keep that clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. And another translation, in fact, when I was young, I, I memorized in this, they've seared their consciences. And now think about this for just a minute. Uh, searing is great when you're barbecuing meat, you know. You crank it up really hot and you drop that steak there on the grill and it just sears it. It just, it just kind of coats it a little bit. It, it hardens that piece, blackens it. It cooks it quickly. 
I uh, play guitar not as often as I would like or as I should. Uh, but when I first started in college, man, I hated that journey to calluses because you, you get sore fingertips. They were cracking and bleeding, and it was a part of the journey. And then nowadays I have calluses, and so I can pick up the guitar and play. And the more I play, the thicker the skin on the ends of my fingertips get. And that helps me not feel the pain. Calluses are really good on your fingertips. They're really bad on your heart and your soul. And so what Paul says here is be really careful not to harden your heart against me, against God. Be careful not to sear or sever or cut off your sensitivity to God in you. Don't violate, don't intentionally go left when God says go right. Be be really careful because, he says, some people have shipwrecked their faith. Now, that's pretty uh, strong language. Shipwreck. When you think of a shipwreck, this is not just some cruise ship docking, you know, in Cabo. This is like, this is like people are on the shore. People are in the water drowning. The ship has run aground. The rocks have torn up the hole. You've lost your cargo. It's going down. This is really an important thing, Paul says. Don't shipwreck your faith. And I, as a pastor, I can say, you know, with a lot of pain, I have friends who've shipwrecked their faith. And it doesn't, take a lot to shipwreck your faith. It just takes a little, done a lot to shipwreck your faith. Because all you have to be uh, is just off one degree, right? Just, just one degree off. Think about it this way. If you're on one of those big cruise ships and you're leaving Los Angeles Harbor there and you're going to, uh, say, Tokyo and you're going to go across the Pacific Ocean, it's a long journey. And if the captain is not paying attention just off one degree, you're not going to make it to your destination. I was thinking about this, this a couple days ago. We're going to Israel in May. We got a trip. It's just about 7,000 air miles to get from PDX to Tel Aviv, okay? 7,000. One degree is 120 miles which is not a big deal. Just land in Gaza. It'll be fine. <laughs> Just land in Syria. I mean, what's the worst that could happen in landing in Damascus, right? Well, you don't want to go there if you're trying to go to Israel, right? Um, you know, you could be in serious danger. What's one degree? That's just one degree off. But usually what happens is it's never just one degree. It's one degree that takes it to a couple degrees and even more. And what Paul is saying here is that you and I could live our lives in such a way, we could express our faith in such a way that faith takes a lesser priority for us, that we put priority in what we want and what our heart desires, and then we end up off course. I can't tell you the number of people that I've talked with, that I've counseled, friends, people that I've known and loved and, and, and you know, just been a part of. They look at me and go, but you know what? I'm not happy. And, and I think God wants me to be happy. And if I could be happy, then all this would work out. And so therefore, I'm going to. And then they fill in the blank. And I'm telling you, that's not what God is interested in. God has a blessing on our lives if we faithfully cling to Jesus Christ. And sometimes that means you might feel like you're on the mast of a ship and the wind is just battering you. But cling to your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't just get off a degree Because you get insensitive to that, to where more and more so you're off and you just are completely off. And then you run your ship of faith aground and it breaks up. And that is not a pretty picture. Now, the reason I bring that up is because we're going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes uh, the next several months or the end uh, of the spring. And it's a beautiful book. It's it's an exciting book. It, It can be a deeply depressing book, depending on how you look at it. I think it's great because it is a warning for you and for me by a guy, written by a guy named Solomon, who got off, not just one degree, 
but many degrees. And he writes at, from the, you know, the end looking back. And, and the, the truth is, I'll just be honest, we're not even going to look at Ecclesiastes today. We're going to look at the writer of Ecclesiastes because we're going to read Ecclesiastes starting next week. And we're going to wonder, so how did this guy get there? Well, today is how he got there. And it's basically a foundation for this. A look at Solomon's life and how he shipwrecked his faith in God. And so what I want to do is I want to share with you, as I've seen it in the examples of Solomon and what he turned from God to trust into instead of God, is, a, is really basically four statements, four beliefs of a shipwrecked faith or a path to get there, of a journey to get there. And, and you, you'll find yourself on these. I find myself in these. I'm preaching to myself preaching to you. We're part of this. We, we need this in the church because we can easily stand up and point to our culture. We have no moral high ground in the church today. We are as messed up as anybody, right? Now, if we could get this right, though, if we could come to repentance and come straight and clean with God and restore the faith by clinging to Jesus on this, then people would look at us and go, there are people who trust not in wealth, but in God and give generously. They are a people who trust not in all their pleasures, but they live a life that honors the commands of Scripture, whether they like that or not, right? Uh, you know, people would look at us and go, hey, you know what? Those are people that don't worry about what's going to happen day to day with the stock market or with the politics, the economy, because they put their security and hope in something else. And they would go, I want to know more about that, right? And so we're going to take a look at this today, and I want to just look at the four beliefs, and we'll just kind of quickly overview Solomon's life. Now, there are far too many verses to look at on your own Bible, because you'll be thumbing back and forth. So they're on the big wall Bible there, the big projected Bible. And if you want the notes, they're at the door there. I'll call out the verses, but I would just love for you to get a big picture view of the life of Solomon, the one who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And in doing so, ask yourself, could I be believing, could I be believing these lies? Is it possible that I'm walking down the wrong path, even one degree off? So the first false belief is basically this. It'll never happen to me. I mean, that couldn't happen to me, right? That is a statement of pride. That is a statement of deception, self-deception. The Bible says that uh, pride goes before a fall. So be very careful to not think of yourself too highly. Because if you think, oh, that'll never happen to me, you are a prime candidate for tripping up in that one, right? That we should be cautious We should be examining our lives and making sure that we're not believing lies, right? That we're not walking down the wrong path. Every one of us should have an inventory, moral, fearless, where we go, am I believing the wrong things? Because I might end up like another person. It's easy to look at somebody else and go, man, I can't believe that they got there. But we could get there too. But by the grace of God, go I, is the statement, right? Well, here's a guy named Solomon. If anybody could have said it'll never happen to me, it'd be Solomon. Why? Well, if, if we read his words in 1 Kings chapter 4, and we start in verse 29, this is what we read about Solomon. It says, God gave Solomon very great wisdom and understanding and knowledge as vast as the sands of the seashore. So this guy's got it down. If you think, hey, I'm really smart, Solomon was smarter. Hey, I really lived a good life. Solomon had all of that, right? If you're trusting in maybe your knowledge or your position or in your wisdom uh, to prevent you from getting off course, Solomon had all that and more, right? This is what it says. In fact, his wisdom exceeded that of all the wise men of the East and the wise men of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite. You've read his book on Amazon, right? It's on the bestseller list, right? Okay, I don't know who that guy is. Uh, The sons of Mahal, Heman, Calcol, and Darda. These were very wise people. They were the experts of the day. They were the consultants of the day. Wiser than those guys. His fame spread, spread throughout all the surrounding nations. 
He composed some 3,000 proverbs and wrote 1,005 songs. I mean, are you kidding me? This guy's prolific in his wisdom. Now, we have the book of Proverbs, which has a lot of those proverbs in there. And we have one of his songs called the Song of Solomon. It's a really good one. He's not allowed to read it in church. And um, it's really good stuff. But this is just a smidgen of what Solomon cranked out. And it's amazing stuff. It will change your life. For many, 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 many years, I read Proverbs every month. Just whatever the day was, I read that proverb. And it made me so much wiser than my age. And it is really great, great, great wisdom literature. But it still didn't keep him from getting off path. He had all that. And if you think, I know the Bible inside and out, can I tell you? He wrote part of the Bible. (laughs) So he's got it better than you, right? But he still got off the path. It says he could speak with authority about all kinds of plants, from the great cedar of Lebanon to the tiny hyssop that grows from cracks in a wall. <laughs> that, that, no pun intended, that cracks me up because I look at things like that, I go, thank you. That little plant that's grown in the concrete, he can write about that and talk about that. All right? We just like put, you know, weed stuff on there, right? Roundup. And he goes, I could tell you all about that plant. He knew everything, right? He could also speak about animals and birds and small creatures and fish. Now check this out. And kings from every nation sent their ambassadors to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. Now, if you think you're wise, you're not as wise as Solomon. I guarantee you that the president has not called you up and said, hey, help me uh, deal this deal with the Democrats. I'm struggling. Right? Nobody's gotten a call from him. You've not been invited to the White House to get the Republicans and the Democrats to sit down and figure out a plan. Anybody here? Okay. Uh, the, the United Nations hasn't called you to figure out peace in the Middle East. Anybody? And they go, you know, we, we, got, the, we got this uh, ongoing struggle here. It's only like, you know, 4,000 years old, but I'm sure you're smart. You can take care of it. See, kings from all over came to sit down and listen to wa- the wisdom of Solomon. This guy was amazing. He was unbelievable in his wisdom, far greater than anything any of us could ever fathom. And people sought him out for his wisdom. And if anybody could have said, that whole thing you're talking about, about shipwrecking my, my faith, it'll never happen to me. Have you looked at me? I'm Solomon. God-given wisdom, literally. God-given wisdom. It could never happen to me. And I think that's something that we think subtly in our hearts. That, oh, other people, I could look at those people. I mean, look at the person next to you. Of course they could mess up. Have you seen them? I mean, look at them, right? but, But me? There's no way it would happen to me. Well, we are a prime candidate at that point to struggle and to fall and get off the course. I don't care how many impressive things you've done for God. All of us are susceptible to getting off course. And if we're not careful and course correct, we can all shipwreck our faith. Number two is a statement that, uh, man, I hear a lot. It's only one. It's only one, right? I mean, Solomon's like, it could never happen to me. Okay, but, but this one, this is an exception, right? It's only one. Well, how, did, how does that play out in our lives? Well, first, let's see how it played out in the life of Solomon. In uh, 1 Kings 3, 1, it says, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and married one of his daughters, Okay. So made an alliance with this, with this king, had the princess come up. Sounds great. He brought her to live in the city of David until he could finish building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around the city. Now, though this was the very first step, my friends, of him drifting off course. You're like, what's the big deal? He just married a princess, right? I mean, that kind of makes sense. She's a surrounding nation, you know, person. And so uh, if you want to kind of shore up your defenses and make sure you get peace with what could possibly be an enemy or at least an antagonist, why don't you just marry into the family? Which is absolutely what he did and why he did it. Think about this. Egypt was the dominant superpower of the age. They controlled everything. 
the, the equivalent of the missiles and the air and the space and the satellites and the tanks and the ships. I mean, in their day and age, they were the dominant superpower of the world. And if you study geography, if you look a little bit at the map, you will see that they're south and then there's Israel north of them, northeast of them. And then everything else is above. All the other empires are above. And so if you're Egypt and you need to go beat up on somebody to get some money, you pass through Israel. And if your troops are really excited about beating up on people, they'll just like thump on some people on the way through, right? Israel became the thumping ground of anybody that passed north or south. All the nations in the north, they would come down. They would attack Egypt, right, to try to dominate Egypt. And guess what? They would dominate Israel in the process. They were this land between the north and the south. And so it was really strategically important to have peace with the dominant superpower. And what better way to do it than to marry the king's daughter? makes so much sense, right? I mean, think about this. If you're sending your troops out and you're Pharaoh and you're going to go, you know, pound on the Hittites, which are up in the north and modern day Turkey and their capital up there and, uh, you know, maybe in Nineveh, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, whatever. It's like, you know what? Hey, just make sure when you travel through Israel, you just stay on the coastal plain because don't you dare get near my daughter because she's my daughter and I'll pound on you and I'll take your life. You will be one head shorter by the time you get back, all right? So it was a great strategic idea. But what it was, was a desire for security. And God had said, we're going to see in a minute, that God clearly said, you should only trust me for your security. But then the bigger issue is it wasn't just one. Because it's never just one. I mean, if you look at the rest of the story, he ends up marrying a lot of women, foreign women. And, And again, it's not a, It's not anything against women or against foreign women. It's against what they're going to bring, which is all their gods. We'll see that in a moment. Now, if you could go back in time, if you could jump in your TARDIS or in your DeLorean or if you're a Bill and Ted fan in your phone booth, who nobody knows what a phone booth is anymore, but Bill and Ted knew. Um, If you could go back in time and land there and go, Solomon, 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 can I just stop you for a moment? Now, you just heard from God. He just showed up. He visited you and you got what you wanted, which was wisdom. You could have had wealth. You could have had fame. You could have had all the pleasures. But you, you said, God, great word, Solomon. I'm like a little child. I don't know how to lead. I'm not like my dad, I, David. I, I just need some wisdom. Why don't you just give me that? Man, that was awesome. But you're going to marry this gal. And he goes, yeah, because this is the strategic. Can I just tell you something? It's not going to be just one. He'd look at you and go, are you crazy? It's just one. Because I know that's our human heart. Because it's only ever just one. It's only one drink. It's only one bet. It's only one visit to that porn site. It's only one visit to that prostitute. It's only one visit to whatever you want to do that you think is going to numb your pain or fulfill your greatest, deepest desire. But it's never going to be just one. Because it can never only be just one. Because one will never satisfy And you will continue on a path to where you are continually consuming your soul by consuming something else. It's never just one. We think we're pretty smart and we can handle it. Man, we can't. A third phrase we make, a statement we make, a bold proclamation is this, is I can handle it. Yeah, I know it never happened to me and it's not just one, but I can handle it, right? I can stop any time. Talk to anybody with an addiction. I can stop any time, right? No, you can't. I've stopped three times this week. (laughs) No, you haven't, okay? You can't just stop, right? You think you can handle it? You can't handle it. It's no big deal, right? 
What's, what are you worried about? Well, if you look way before Solomon, hundreds of years before Solomon, Moses has brought the children of Israel, the Hebrews, to the point of the promised land. In his last book, Deuteronomy, he's basically uh, reciting sermons of what God wants his people to know as they go into the land. And in Deuteronomy 17, it's fascinating. God says in advance, you are going to want a king. I know you're going to throw me off as your God. I understand that. You're going to want a king. So let me give you some warnings. Let me give you three prohibitions. I'm going to say these are the three thou shalt nots on this, okay? So here, here's what it says in uh, Deuteronomy 17, 16 to 17. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. Okay, so don't go buy a bunch of horses. Don't go get a bunch of tanks and guns and arms and things like that. You just don't get that stuff. Okay, you want those helicopters? Don't go get it. Okay, don't get all those things because first of all, you're not supposed to go back to Egypt. But deeper than that, you will start to trust in your military might. (laughs) I would say this applies to us as a nation, my friends. Okay. We trust in our military might and we're safe and secure and we're smug, but we're not as safe as we think we are. But what else did God say? Okay, don't build up a strong military force, especially from Egypt. Number two, the king must not take many wives for himself. That's one of the questions I want to ask him when I get there. It's like, why did you say many wives? Why didn't you just say more than one? Okay, anyway. Many wives from self because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And again, this is not anything negative, not a pejorative towards women. It's just the reality that they're bringing their gods along. We'll see that, okay? And they will turn your heart away from the Lord. So, so number one, prohibition, uh, don't build up a strong military force, especially from the horses of Egypt. And they're the ones that have the horses. Number two, don't take a lot of wives for yourself because they will turn your heart from the Lord. And then number three, don't accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself, okay? D- don't trust in your military might for security. Don't trust in your sensuality for all your pleasure. And don't trust in all your gold and silver for all your wealth and your prosperity. So how, how's old Saul doing? Well, he's batting a thousand on, on the wrong end. Okay, check this out. In uh, 1 Kings 10, 26, Solomon built up a huge force of chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. He stationed them in the chariot cities and some near him in Jerusalem. Okay, not, not good. You go to 1 Kings 11, 1 to 4. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and among the Hittites. Now the Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Okay, it's, again, it's not a negative against women. It's the reality that that's how it worked. When you intermarried, you brought your gods along and that was a further strengthening of the kingdoms because now you worship my God, I worship your God, plethora of gods, pantheon of gods. No big deal. What's just one more God, right? Well, God says there's only one. It's me. You can't bring in all these gods. Yet Solomon, and here it is, insisted, insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth. My math doesn't work. <laughs> I, I know I went to school in California, to, but even California math, it just doesn't work here. And 300 concubines. What in the world do you need with 300 concubines when you've got 700 wives, right? There's never enough, right? I, I, it just blows my mind. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. How many did he have? He had 1,000 women at his disposal. Wow. In Solomon's old age, it says, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord as God and his father, as his father David had been. And then you go to 1 Kings 10, 14 to 15. Each year, Solomon received about 25 tons of gold. 
This did not include the additional revenue he received from merchants and traders, all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land. So just that 25 tons of gold, that in today's dollars, $1.6 billion of gold. I don't even know how to calculate a billion. One of my friends shared with me, said, you know how many uh, seconds are a million? 11 days. Sure. 11 days. That's a million seconds. You know how many days is a billion seconds? <laughs> it's years, 31 years. The difference between 11 days and 31 years is the difference from a million to a billion, all right? He had $1.6 billion every year coming in, not including all the other stuff that he got, right? What do you do with money like that? You just build bigger storehouses, right? And you store it. And then one day somebody steals it from you. Or you could use it for good. But think about this. I mean, this guy's bad a thousand, three for three on this one. He's not listening to the Lord. And every one of these took his heart one degree further away from worshiping the true God. But that's okay because I can handle it, right? No, you can't. It's just one. It's never one. As a thousand wives, Solomon. It wasn't one. It's a thousand. Can you imagine just saying, hey, it's not going to be one. It's going to be a thousand. He'd laugh at you in Hebrew. But I'm sure it'd still be funny, okay? A thousand. Okay, last statement we make. Because this is where we get to. I'm just going to do it anyway. We don't start here. Nobody ever starts here. But we certainly go here and we get here because it's a slippery slope that we get to all of these steps. I'm just going to do it anyway. It's a long way from it could never happen to me. But one degree at a time, we drift off course until we shipwreck our faith. Now, these are some incredibly sad and sobering words from 1 Kings 11, 5 to 9. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely, as his father David had done. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he even built a pagan shrine for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and another for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built such shrines for all his foreign wives to use for burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. You know, we look at Solomon and go, he built the temple. <laughs> he built a lot of temples. Yeah, but he built the one big temple. He built a lot of temples that were big. But the one in Jerusalem, <laughs> he built a lot of temples in Jerusalem. But the one to Yahweh, yeah, and the one to Chemosh and the one to Molech, he built a lot of temples and he sacrificed there. You know, if you were to go to the temple of Yahweh at the time of Solomon, what would you offer as a sacrifice? A bull, an animal, a, a, a ram, a calf, something prescribed by the Old Testament? If you were to go to the temple of Chemosh or Molech, what would you sacrifice? Well, what they desire, what they demand. What do they desire? What do they demand? Those gods desire human sacrifice, and they desire infant sacrifice into the fire. Solomon, with a thousand women available, must have had a lot of offspring. And I, it's unfathomable to me how he could get from the wisest guy on the planet to offering up his own baby into the fire and throwing his child into the fire and the flames. And it's no big deal, right? I think we've gotten that way in our culture today. It's no big deal. It says, the Lord was very angry with Solomon for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Now, how could Solomon get so off course so quickly? Well, he didn't get off course so quickly. He got off one degree at a time, one statement at a time, one step at a time. 
but why didn't God come in and judge in that moment? Well, that's kind of the struggle with life, right? Some of you are parents. If you're a parent, you get this. Maybe you're an employer. If you're an employer, you get this. When you have people that you've given commands to, orders to, instructions to, directions to, and if they don't do what's instructed, you don't always know about it. You don't always see the results of it right away, right? If you, um, for example, if you uh, don't check the coolant in your car, you won't really notice it. I was talking to someone, my car's running really rough. Really, when's the last time I had it tuned up? I've never had it tuned up. How many miles are on it? Like 120,000? You haven't had it tuned up? No. When's the last time you checked the oil? Oil? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Brakes? I don't know. You're not going to need them because you're not going to have them, right? Okay. A mentor of mine, a uh, dear friend, said it this way. I was even in college, he said this. You know, here, here's how it works for followers of Christ and just for human beings in general. It's like we go to the doctor and we have a heart issue and, and maybe we call 911 and we're taken to the hospital, ER, and, and you know, they're working on our heart and they're going, okay, you got a problem with your heart or this or that or whatever and we can do this, but you got to take medicine. So start taking this medicine. Be faithful to this medicine, right? And you take this medicine. Had a friend years ago who was bipolar, a mental struggle. It's like, here's this medicine. Take this medicine. Medicine can be really great. And you take it and you take it and you take it and your heart feels better and your mind feels better and everything's thinking clearly and looking clearly and walking clearly and everything's great. And you're like, great. And you look at the, the bottle and you got a couple pills left. You could get a prescription refill or whatever. You're like, I just feel great. And so you make a decision. I'm going to stop taking my medicine. And you know what happens the next day? You wake up and everything's fine. And guess what? I don't need the medicine anymore. And you don't for a while (laughs) until the residual medicine flushes itself out of your system. And one day you wake up with heart issues and you call 911 or medical issues, mental issues, emotional issues. And you go to the doctor. They go, how's the medicine working for you? I stopped taking it like two months ago. What are you, a moron? Well, I was feeling fine. Well, of course you were feeling fine. That's what the medicine does. It makes you feel fine but I thought I didn't need it anymore. No, you still need it, right? The problem with these statements is we don't ever feel the effects of the statements immediately. It takes a while to feel the effects of the statements. And usually by the time we feel the effects of the statements, other people around us feel the effects of the statements. Usually by the time we crater our lives, we've cratered a lot of people's lives in the process. Usually by the time we run our car in the ditch, we've got a lot of passengers who've gone in the ditch with us, right? And then we cry out and go, God, where were you? It's like, I was right there telling you every day, take the medicine, right? But you didn't. Now, I know that sounds incredibly depressing, but I think we live in a culture where we say, I just don't think that this is how it works anymore. It's not that big of a deal. Um, We have what we call uh, chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery is we think we're smarter than anybody else in the past. All those people, they were so immature. They just didn't know. We know now. We are better than. And so we change as time goes on, and we're chronological snobs. We are so much better than those people. And and the reality is we're not any smarter than we were 2,000, 4,000 years ago. We just think we're smarter, and so we think we're modern. And we go look at these Bible things. We go, oh, come on, that's so old-fashioned, right? Yeah, it is old-fashioned. It is. Nothing wrong with that, right? God's word is eternal, right? And it, it, it was true then, it's true now. It's true for all times, all people, all places, right? Yeah, okay. But if we don't want that, we can easily devise thoughts and schemes and strategies in our head to say it doesn't apply to me anymore. In fact, I have an article 
And I'm not going to tell you all the context. It's a long story. But it's of college students, Christian college students, standing protesting a school in Southern California. And they're saying, this is not a sin, God, when God clearly says it was a sin. And I'm sitting there go, that is awesome. We can tell God what a sin is and isn't. I didn't know we had that honor. I didn't know that God needed us to define sin anymore. Is he so immature? Is he so, you know, uh, you know unfocused or old-fashioned that we need to define what's right and wrong? Well, that's what we think. There's, I think there's some of us in that room. There's another group of us in this room that, truth be told, we have cratered our lives. We have blown up our lives. Man, we have run our life into the ditch. We have shipwrecked our life. It is, it is a mess, right? My friends, there's always hope. There is always hope because you, you might be one degree off. You might be five degrees off, 10, 90 degrees off. You know the degree that really God cares about is 180 degrees. That's called repentance. When you stop the direction you're going and do a 180 and come back to him, that's what God wants. When that son, that prodigal son, went out there and enjoyed everything he could enjoy until it all ran out because it always runs out, right? And he came to his senses, which is a great moment. You hit rock bottom, we call it. And he started coming back to God, even though he had this scheme of how he's going to work for it, earn his graces, kind of, you know, do this. I'll just be a servant in my dad's household like the other servants. No, 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 no. When we do a 180 and we come back to God, God runs to us. And he repairs so much. There's this Old Testament phrase in the book of Joel. It's really cool. It says, he, he will restore, uh, replenish, or rebuild the years the locusts stripped away from you, which every one of us understands, right? No, <laughs> what does that mean? Um, locusts, they were the devourer of the age. And when God said to the people, you honor me, you obey me, and I will make the rains fall, and I will make the crops grow, and all this stuff. Okay, great. But if you don't, this is what's going to happen. And one of those punishments is locusts will come and strip your land of all the harvest. And, and so in the prophet Joel, the book of Joel, God's saying, all these locusts have continuously come through and stripped of you of everything. You have nothing left. But God will restore you. And he can even make you so plentiful when you've had nothing. God will take you and all that the locusts have destroyed, he will restore to you. Now, You'll still have your memories. You'll still have your, your battle scars and your war wounds. And there'll be a lot of things you have to pick up and clean up and a lot of relationships you have to work on. But if you find yourself here today and you've blown up your life, your marriage, your sexuality, your identity, blown up your mind, your soul, if you've gotten so far off course, if you find yourself shipwrecked today, you are in a great place because all you have to do is raise your hand and go, God, I need it. I need help. And he throws you a life preserver and jumps in and pulls you out himself. And that is what Jesus has done for us. He rescues us, my friends. But we have to raise our hand and go, I need rescuing. I know it's a long road back, but God is going to walk with you. Finishing well in your life doesn't mean finishing perfect because none of us will ever finish perfect. But it means not letting the imperfections defeat us. Not letting the struggle with sin destroy us personally but getting up and running back to your heavenly father who will embrace you and call you a daughter and call you a son and put a ring on your finger and a robe around you and give you brand new shoes and welcome you and throw a massive party for you and you will be amazed at the grace of God in your life that is the picture Jesus painted of our heavenly father now in the weeks to come we're going to see Ecclesiastes sorry we didn't share any Ecclesiastes. Next week, we're jumping in. The first 11 verses, unbelievable. And we are going to see what I think our church needs to see, churches need to see, our culture, our city, our world needs to see, is what does it look like to get to the end of this and look back 
and finally gain some wisdom. And here's the beautiful part about it. You don't have to blow your life up to gain wisdom from Solomon because he did it for you. <laughs> All right? Let, him, let his words instruct you and me. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your love and for the instructions that we learn. And, and you've said that these things were written, these stories were written so we could know and we could see and we could hear and we could see examples of good and bad. And so we see a lot of bad around us, inside of us, in the words of Scripture with the story of Solomon. But God, we want you to restore our lives. We want you to reclaim the space that we have filled with something else, another god or goddess. God, I pray that you would, uh, in, in just the wonderful tenderness and gentleness and the strength that you do, show us what's true and what's right, what's noble, pure, admirable, lovable, all that stuff. And we think about that stuff and live with that in mind and live our lives accordingly. Because yes, it is old-fashioned that's okay because it's solid foundation that we stand on and we believe in that and if we're here and we we need to come to you lord it's more than just a mental decision to say yes to your truth but if it's a a a willful decision emotional decision to run to you and say god i have blown my life up i have destroyed i have wrecked and ruined and i am shipwrecked god you are a god that receives and welcomes and loves us and you walk with us and hold us on the journey back to strengthen faith. And we do that because we trust in Christ. We trust in the fact that you loved us so much. You sent this wonderful Jesus to come and to live and to die on a cross to, just to pay for our sins, to save us from our sins. So as we put our trust in what Jesus did, we will have life. And he was buried and he was resurrected. He rose again. He ascended. He's praying for us. And we, we live on his behalf as followers of Jesus in this world today. So God, strengthen us on this journey, we pray. As we come to you, as we come back to you, as we confess you as Savior and Lord, God, make us shining examples, trophies of your grace and mercy, we pray in your name. Amen.